This is podcast 330. I can hardly believe it. And it's entitled Tulsa Turnaround in honor of David Zoll and Mockingbird's uh, conference that is being held in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A wonderful moment uh, in the twilight, hopefully, of the pandemic, uh, that Mockingbird with its remarkable message. It's so apt and so vitally needed message of the Christian gospel is uh, meeting um, in preparation, ultimately, for the sort of annual awesome New York conference in April. It's Tulsa Turnaround, and it uh, finds its title from a really terrible song by Three Dog Night, which I'll play at the end, um, which is rather vulgar song from 1973, but which I love because I associate it with the first uh, months that I was really... Um, able to court uh, the woman who became my wife, Mary Kahneman Nazal. And uh, so I love the song Tulsa Turnaround, but its title uh, attracted me for the cast. Now, the power of the cast rests in the fact that I was awakened recently by um, thoughts concerning a liturgical service that we had attended in honor of someone. This particular service uh, in honor of someone that we knew very well, and I knew extremely well, um, was a kind of conglomerate of so many false notes that uh, both individually and together it took my breath away with its um, profound confusion uh, reflective of a much larger human predicament that the world is full of above and beyond in a meta level you might say um, that the service simply almost exemplified every aspect of the service or almost every aspect with one exception was sincere everybody believed what they were saying and yet something about the um, there was a kind of um, I guess I would say glossing over possibly or maybe uh, over extenuation of some truths concerning the person honored and the facts that it it fell into the category of a great many funerals that I've done um, I've done hundreds of funerals personally and uh, so very often, especially at so-called celebrations of life, the truth is not acknowledged. And you come away not even thankful for the person because the person that was being memorialized bears almost no visible or a concrete resemblance to the person that you loved and knew. I'm not saying you should talk about negative things uh, at a person's uh, service after they die, but <clears throat> to, um, to cover it over with uh, highly unassimilated um, contrasting elements. Now, I've been at funerals where this was, un where this was necessary. You couldn't help it. I mean, you absolutely couldn't help someone's false, um, really false-toned eulogy, or you, you simply weren't in a position to say no to a contribution. I was doing a funeral once where the um, the main eulogy of a very lovely person, actually, this was at All Saints Chevy Chase, uh, where a lovely person who was much loved was buried, but the major um, eulogist spent the entire time talking about the fact that this fellow was a philatelist, that the... Um, that the man being memorialized had connected with the world through his uh, collection of stamps. And it was true, of course, uh, but it was a kind of like a, a, the entire, the fellow went on for 30 minutes about his philately. And oh my gosh, what was I supposed to do? But I've seen much worse, much worse than that. At least that was relatively harmless. Now, um, the... Uh, the uh, problem with this liturgical moment was that with one exception, there was one very serious eulogy given uh, that hinted at deep and dark possibilities. Uh, 
the funeral commemorated a fact that was quite tragic concerning the lovely person and the wonderful person being uh, commemorated. In fact, two. And um, there was one element that was simply unacknowledged except once. And at one point it was acknowledged in such heaviness it was almost atheistical. A, a, a very Christian service suddenly turned atheistical. But then it was hooked to this right to Holy Eucharist with hymns that had all been cleansed of their male pronouns in a way that seems now very anachronistic and kind of dumb from the sort of 80s. And uh, <clears throat> one, there was a solo that was kind of a monument to the egotism of the, <clears throat> of the performer and other elements of it were just, it was just a mess. And uh, it was a case of the, uh, uh, the, uh, it was not greater than the sum of its parts. The sum of its parts was cacophony and spiritual entropy and, uh, you, you know, I, I just, I'm probably just the only person who felt this way, but I kind of walked out numbed uh, with the different forms of data that were given me now. So I came away saying to myself positively, what might have been done to make this commemoration true? What might have been done to make it accurate, to really make it accurate to the person who's um, much loved uh, and uh, had a lot of good in his life, but also had a couple of terrible things to um, negotiate, especially tragedies that came from outside, and yet were not entirely unself-generated, because there's always uh, an element of, you know, uh, back and forth between external and internal. And um, what might have made this an occasion of thanksgiving, of faith-building, but also of truth with a little bit of humor that was ultimately um, accurate and yet gospel. That's the great thing about Mockingbird. Low anthropology means we're accurate about the human condition, and the human condition is deeply flawed. It's flawed intrinsically. It's not flawed environmentally. It's flawed intrinsically and at all levels of its reach. The nature of a human being and the nature of this world's context for human beings in which to live is a very negative. It's uh, uh, most of the people die that I know do not die well. They die in, in a negative state of mind or in a highly negative situation, which for reasons beyond their control or sometimes even within their control is, uh, is um, <clears throat> covered over, contaminated by what is traditionally called sin and human self-involvement uh, and narcissism or misapprehensions of basic truths that are before one. They're just most most major events in life are are negative. Every so often something wonderful happens, but there are a lot of negative events. Um, and I would say at funerals you see a, a lack of truth in the overall truth of life, which should be beautifully countered by the message of the gospel, but um, uh, in, it can't be countered when the truth is not acknowledged. Well, um, the uh, thought that came into my mind... I woke up early this morning thinking about it. it. Was actually well at first I began to think about Robert Nathan and his slightly sweetness and light novels uh, from the 1940s and 50s. Slightly sweetness and light, but there's a kind of a wistful sweetness and light to them, coupled with an odd Christian depth. And the man was a, a Jew, a, a wealthy establishment New York uh, Jew who went to Phillips Exeter Academy and Harvard College and was not at all the victim of, of anti-Semitism, was at the top of the line in American elite culture. And yet he wrote these kind of strange little 
plays that are touchingly positive. But that's not what ultimately turned the tide and got me up. What got me up was I began to think about The Music Man. Now, The Music Man is a musical written by Meredith Wilson, assisted, I believe, by Franklin Lacey. But Meredith Wilson was the main creative person. And the movie was made in 1962, and it was in the early 60s. And it made an incredible effect. Even Bosley Crowther and the sort of New York critics said, this is wholesome and yet incredibly magnetic, wholesome and yet incredibly accessible and powerful, and ultimately really wondrous. And uh, The Music Man is really about a, a, a profoundly unhallowed and sinful human situation that is turned into a kind of whole that is greater than the sum of its parts, and a transformed life, both individually and in a, a small town, in which the entire um, life of the town and of the individuals is lifted to a new dimension of possibility. And let me say what briefly happens. You remember the Music Man. Remember the, the Beatles in their first album, Meet the Beatles, um, took a song by it called um, Till There Was You. I remember at the time thinking, oh my gosh, please, let's not mix the Beatles with the Music Man. But they did, and it, the song fails flat, in my opinion. But there we are. Um, the Music Man tells a story of a chap named Professor Hill, who's a con man, what is today called a grifter and a con man, who uh, makes it his business to come to a small Iowa town and falsely convince the people that they have a sociological problem on with their young people, which is sort of partly true, but he uses very emotive language, and they put themselves in his hands to see if he can deliver their young people from problems. And so he uh, gets them to order um, expensive band uniforms for all the young people in the town and expensive instruments, in particular 76 trombones, but also clarinets and trumpets, so they can learn to play uh, and have a new morale, a new goal in the group uh, environment of a marching band. And he does this, and uh, he knows nothing about music, of course. He's lying about everything he's saying. But he convinces them that if they just have a think system, they can just by thinking about the song that they're trying to play, they'll be able to play it with no practice or no understanding of the instrument. And uh, it doesn't work, obviously, at all. But he convinces the people of this possibility, which he has no intention either of following through on. In fact, he is going to steal the money and leave town the night he gets the money in his pocket. But Carl Jung intervenes. <laughs> What I mean to say is, and I'm talking Carl Jung now, not PC, um, a beautiful blonde woman who is, in fact, a, a, a spinster, uh, the librarian, Marion the librarian, but is beautiful and blonde, falls in love with the guy. So she is the biggest straight arrow. She is the most conspicuous straight arrow in the entire town, and he is the most conspicuous crooked uh, chap that's ever come to the town, and she falls for him. Now, Jung would say what happens is that there's something inside many women that it is deliberately unconscious, but deliberately, because it goes way back in evolution millions of years, is unconsciously programmed to fall in love with someone unsuitable uh, who her parents would object to. Now, that's what I would call law and grace there. There's a law thing going on, you know, deliberately falling for the guy who is the opposite of what she should be doing. And you see this all the time in life, and despite all the talk about gender, it's a, uh, Jung had something very important. It explained something that Mary and I observed in centuries. It looked like a pastoral care of young couples getting married, and we constantly would say to ourselves, how in the world did she fall for this guy? I mean, what, how could it be? It's like, like uh, Meryl Streep. 
Streep in Woody Allen's movie Manhattan, who falls for Wallace Shawn as opposed to, you know, a beautiful, handsome, blonde hunk, you know. I mean, how could that happen? And it happens so regularly that we called it the crumb, C-R-U-M-B, syndrome. Why would these lovely, beautiful girls uh, in New York fall for these abusive men. Occasionally it works out because the abusive man is so touched by the maternal love of the, um, of the, uh, of the woman that he becomes famous, <laughs> rises to the occasion. Men have a different problem. They, they fall in love with the anima, according to Jung. Obviously, I'm not believing this, um, who's almost always the, the blonde, the blonde, the sexy blonde who's equivocal whose chastity is uncertain, as Jung says, and who is equivocal and puzzling and therefore highly mystifyingly attractive. Well, whatever's true or not, um, Mary and the librarian, the Pharisee of all Pharisees in the town at the beginning, falls in love with the most uh, predatory character in the entire place. But he is so touched by this that having um, robbed the people of this money for these uniforms and these musical instruments, he's so touched by her love, which is very sincere, that he can't leave the town. He's, he's utterly stuck there because he is so touched and, and stunned uh, and paralyzed in the best sense by her love for him that he stays and he's exposed. She knew about it all the time, it turns out, wouldn't you know? And he's exposed and he's almost tart and feathered, but there's a kind of scene of mutual forgiveness, mutual confession, and everybody finds that they're at one after this scene of the truth. And uh, the sudden, suddenly, in a kind of Revelation um, you know, 22 scenario, the band suddenly does pick up their trombones and they all play in perfect harmony and the entire town is unified over the uh, gift uh, that Professor Hill has given them in the marching band, and they play in perfect, perfect unison, the entire town marching with them, 76 trombones. But I thought to myself, you know, this is really a picture of, of imputation. Um, odd, but realistic, because the um, Professor Hill is not a good man. He's truly not a good man. He's unscrupulous. I've known a few. Not many, but a few. He's unscrupulous. And the girl is hopelessly caught up in a mythology about this man. She's deliberately falling for a man who is, in fact, taking advantage of everyone in the town, except her younger brother, who's almost autistic, whom he helps. He has some kind of very profound positive effect on her younger brother, and that contributes to her love for the professor. But what happens... When all is said and done, and all is literally said, and all is literally done, acted out in front of you in Meredith Wilson's prize musical, The Music Man, is that uh, a transformation occurs. The, the uh, show is really about transformation at a fundamentally deep level uh, with a apparent sweetness, but is in fact very deep. And this is what uh, was missing, I think, uh, fundamentally in the uh, sort of conglomerate of disparate elements in the service memorial realizing a good man, a flawed man, but a good man, like all of us. There are many good men around, but they're also flawed. Uh, but there was a kind of failure of truth and a kind of packing in of all sorts of extra extraneous elements, quotations and truths, including one very dark, a conspicuously dark eulogy, that if it was true, then the whole thing was on a... the entire thing was on a foundation of sand if what one of the eulogies uh, implied and said is true, then the whole thing itself was um, rendered, uh, was negated, or at least rendered only partly accurate by one of the sort of pull the rug out from under your eulogies. And um, 
so I, I came away, what would change it? What would have changed it was truth? I mean, when I'm buried, I, I want to have people tell the truth about me. It'll be sort of funny. I mean, I don't think there's anything really horrible. There's some terrible things, the things that I wish had never happened or I wish I'd never done. No question about that. But I hope they'll have a kind of compassionate humor about it. And instead of just talking about effects that I may or may not have had on individuals in pastoral care, and I'm happy to hear that or through teaching or sermons or a message, I hope they'll also talk about Attack of the Crab Monsters, you know, and the alligator people and my absolute love of 50s and 60s be monster movies and all that that means and all the so yeah, I hope there'll be irony and fun and delight and joy and also tears and warmth and that people will go away I hope with, with thanksgiving with humor with a little bit of a light touch and ultimately the grace of God that God is um, uh, in in the business of both using and forgiving uh, very flawed and fallen instruments. You know, like Coleridge didn't say someone say of Coleridge that was a, a didn't Fitz always quote somebody else who wrote of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the English poet. He was a cracked vessel through which a lot of light shone. Well, isn't that really what I would have wanted to hear yesterday about a man I loved who was being memorialized, or you or me or whoever it may be? Well, that's what um, the music man brought out in me, and I wanted to simply say that uh, and underline it as we listen to the great message which David and Mockingbird and all the Mockingbird team are bringing to the world uh, in Tulsa, even as I speak, uh, the rather... um, shall we say, equivocal song uh, by Three Dog Night, which I dedicate to the current and the future conference. Love you. Oh, Lord, I wish I had never been stoned. Cause when I get high, I can't leave those women alone. Almost Chef and his boys getting ready to slaughter. Looking for the man who turned on the mayor's Yeah.